Hello and welcome to the Parson Brown Podcast, where we talk theology, nerdy goodness, and even some pop culture here and there. I ask that you join us on this journey, have a good time, and thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. Welcome to HCN. Um, it may look a little different, especially if you're watching us live. We don't have our typical lights going because we had a little lightning issue this weekend. But um, Matt and Mark Robinson uh, worked hard Sunday to get our sound working. So we've got sound and a few other things. We just don't have fancy lights, but that doesn't matter, does it? We can still see each other and still talk. Tonight is our second uh, in our series of three theology roundtables for the summer. Uh, tonight is on Christian ethics, and we've got Dr. Tim Gaines here from Trevecca. He is also on staff at Trevecca Community Church, where his wife is the lead pastor, Shana, and they have written books together as well. But uh, Christian ethics especially, uh, Dr. Gaines has written a book, which he actually has some copies here tonight, if you would like some. He's got a Venmo. The books are here. And um, if you want to get one, definitely do that. It's a great book. Um, I did a review of it if you, if you happen to look at that, so um, where I talk a bit about it and then compare him to H. Ray Dunning, which because <laughs> another great ethics book is a, one of Dunning's tiniest books. He's one of his best, and it's on ethics as well. So um, I'm going to turn this over to Tim and let him talk a bit about Christian ethics, especially um, in terms of moral improvisation. Great. Thanks for the invite. Really appreciate it. Good with you all. I want to talk a little bit about um, moral improvisation tonight because I think it's a helpful approach to Christian ethics. I think it's helpful in a number of ways. So I'm going to talk about two forms of improvisation tonight. We're going to talk about drama and we're going to talk about music. Okay. The two forms of improv that emerge in those fields. But I want to talk about improvisation in terms of a helpful approach to Christian ethics because for thousands of years, there have been philosophers and theologians who have been trying to advance a kind of theory of ethics. In other words, they're asking questions of how do we know what a good decision is? If you need to make a decision, if you're in a moral dilemma, if you've got to do something in the moment, how do you make a good decision that you know is going to be good? Now, in the last 300 years, all of these different theories have just exploded. There have been just many, many, many philosophers and theologians who have said, well, here's the way you make a good decision. Let me advance this moral theory. Let me develop this theory that says if you use this, it will lead you to make a good decision. Well, let me, I'll just let you in on this a bit. I still have not found a single moral theory that is just the perfect moral theory that answers all of the questions that gets you to a perfect moral conclusion every single time. Maybe some of you disagree with me. Maybe some of you say like, no, no, there is this perfect moral theory that is without flaw. I still haven't found it yet. And so this presents a particular challenge to those of us who are followers of Jesus to say, okay, if that's the case, if we still don't have a kind of flawless moral theory, how do we 
go about making decisions that we still can trust are good. Or another way maybe we could come at this is to say, well, as Christians, how do we go about making moral decisions? Especially when we find ourselves in the midst of a moral dilemma, especially when we're finding ourselves faced with a decision that we make, what method could we use that would help us go about making those decisions? Let me throw two at you pretty quickly that tend to be kind of used around the church, and I'm not putting these up here just to poke holes in them, but I'm simply saying this is why I think we need something more than just kind of a simplistic approach to these things. The first one is uh, the one that we wear on our, our wrists sometimes. I should have looked around to make sure, you know. Yeah, not that I have a problem with this, but you know the, the WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? I think it's a great moral theory in some respects. But here is the issue that I struggle with. I don't always know exactly what Jesus is going to do in every particular situation, especially the situations that I find myself in. So in other words, I still read Scripture, and I'm surprised by the things that Jesus does in particular situations. That tells me I may not always know what Jesus would do in a, in a given situation. Does that make any sense? Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? Like, you're following me so far? So far, so good? I was a little bit, I told Brandon, I was a little bit late getting here. I was about 15 minutes behind schedule because as I was loading up to leave here tonight, we had a little moral dilemma unfold in our neighborhood tonight. I walk out of the house. My neighbor is several doors down and he goes, Tim, come down here. I need you right now. And as I go down there, I can tell that there's a conflict situation emerging. There's a guy who would kind of like come to the neighborhood. We live across the street from this community pool. He's there. Some people think that he doesn't belong there. Some people think he's been acting inappropriately. They're trying to get him to leave, try to figure out where he lives. Do you belong here? These kinds of things. My neighbors got him kind of pinned into the parking lot. I suddenly just found myself in the midst of a moral theory, and I walked down there thinking to myself in some respects, well, what would Jesus do in a situation like this? And can I be honest with you? I'm not entirely sure what Jesus would do in that particular moral situation. Does, does that make any sense? I read stories. I know that Jesus would act lovingly in a situation like that. There would probably be a particular kind of a challenge. I just don't know exactly what he would do. And so if I take the what would Jesus do approach on this, I don't have some kind of rule book to open up and go, ah, here's the answer to what I should be doing in this moral situation. Do I let my neighbor call the cops or do I say, let's not get the police involved in this? Like situations like that. Okay. So that's the first one. So far, so good. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, we, we, uh, I didn't call the police. I wanted to try to deescalate the situation, try to calm my neighbor down, figure out who this guy is. By the time we were done talking, the police had arrived and cited our friend for trespassing. So anyway, probably not what I would have loved to have happened. And if I'm being really honest, like I would have felt like we could probably resolve this a little bit different, but uh, are we good on this one though? Like why, like not like what would Jesus do is not a bad thing, but just maybe doesn't give us that kind of clear. Okay. The other one is, why don't we just do what the Bible says? Right? Just do it. Well, can I just be honest with you that that is even a little bit more troubling to me? 
Am I saying that the Bible is not a good source of moral discernment? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying I don't know what chapter and verse to look up to say, what should you do when your neighbor has a guy penned into a parking lot and he's threatening to call the police? I don't know where to look in the Bible for those answers. Does that make any sense? Um, or even more complex 21st century questions that we're facing, things like uh, economic ethics or bioethics and these kinds of things. Like, does that mean that the Bible has nothing to say? No. It just simply means the Bible probably is not going to address directly these kinds of issues or provide clear answers to very specific questions. So far, so good. Okay. Are we doing okay? All right, so let me then suggest why I find improvisation to be helpful in this. Because, A, when it comes to Christian ethics, friends, I don't want to jettison Jesus, nor do I want to put away the Bible. I need to figure out how we can still turn to these sources as helpful ways of helping us in a 21st century context make some helpful moral decisions. And I find improvisation to be helpful. And so I'm going to talk about drama really quick, and then I'm going to talk about music really quickly. And then we can have a a conversation. The first one is um, drama. There's a couple of ways that you can go about acting. The first one is the way that I learned how to do it because I'm not a very good actor. Someone hands you a script and they say, memorize these lines, memorize these stage directions, and just do it exactly the way that it's written. Okay, I have to do that because I'm not terribly good at acting. But have you ever been to like an improv show before? Do you know what I'm talking about? One of my favorite improv games when I used to go to like improv theaters is when you get like four actors up here. So actually what we're going to do right now is to do an improv game. I'm just kidding. No, I didn't prepare these, these friends for that. Uh, it's like you get Terry's <laughs> like, I'm done. <laughs> uh, where you bring four or five actors up And then the audience decides who we are going to be. In other words, like we leave the room and then there's someone who's running the game and you all, they say like, give me a character name. And someone says like, um, Beyonce. And so Brandon's going to become Beyonce, right? And then, and then I become like, uh, I don't know, George W. Bush or something. And, uh, like we, you choose these characters, right? And the, the fun of this is you put these really different kinds of characters in a situation, and then we have to come back in. We know who we are. It's on this little slip of paper, but I don't know who they are. And so we have to like figure out as we're acting the scene out in like a backyard barbecue or a, uh, on a boat together or something. You just provide some kind of strange uh, situation. And you put them in there, and you have to act in character. So I'm trying to figure out, as I'm you know <laughs> like doing my George, best George W. Bush impression, uh, we need a, an advisor, you know, something like that. Um, I'm, I'm also trying to figure out who this guy is. And he's, I don't know, doing whatever. Yeah, yeah, let's bring out the Beyonce. But here's the point that I'm trying to get at, is that in order for that game to work, in order for us to have fun, the actors have to stay in character. You have to know that character pretty well to do what you think that character would do. So in other words, no one's going to hand you a script and say, say these lines. But in that situation, that character is supposed to show up. Okay? That's the fun of the game. 
Now, now let me explain why I think that that's helpful when it comes to like wrestling with how we make good moral decisions as Christians is because I don't, is as helpful as scripture is, as necessary, as authoritative and inspired as it is, I don't think the Bible operates well when it's like a script being handed to us. I think we need to read scripture such that we become so ingrained in our character to be followers of Jesus that when we find ourselves in a certain moral situation, we don't necessarily just have to go look up in the script what to do. We react according to the character of Jesus. Does that make sense? So uh, I'll tell you that I went to a uh, a play at Treveca, oh, last year. I think it was the fall, like the homecoming, and um, the homecoming play. And a student of mine, was playing one of the leads, and she was acting this scene, performing a scene where her love interest in the play is supposed to bring her some ice cream. The stage manager is also supposed to put a spoon in the bag that has the ice cream. Stage manager forgot to put the spoon in the bag. So here I am sitting on the first or second row, and I'm watching this, and she just opens this thing up, and she goes, ice cream, how did you know? I love ice cream. And she takes her fingers, and she starts scooping the ice cream out and eating it with her hands. Now, I watched this whole thing, and I'm like, this is delightful. Like, what a wonderful character. I did not know until after the play that that was complete improvisation. What did she do? She acted as the character would act in that particular situation. There was no script. The script said, you know, something like, take the spoon, eat the ice cream. So here's where I think it's helpful. I think sometimes we tend to approach Christian ethics like, okay, here are the rules. Let me just follow all of the rules like a script. But friends, can I just be honest about the fact that I don't think life is that simple sometimes? There may not be a rule for every single situation. And so if I don't find it in the script, am I just out of luck? I don't think so. I think Christian ethics is far more interesting and beautiful than that. And that if we do this well, Scripture helps us to, how do I say this, act the character of Jesus in any given moral situation that we find ourselves in. We know the character so well that when we find ourselves in dilemma, we just kind of go, oh, I'm going to act this way in this particular situation. I don't have to necessarily think about it. I know the character. And in that sense, we do hopefully, what Jesus would do. Now, the second one, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up, uh, is uh, jazz. Any jazz fans in here? Okay, that's good. I, I played jazz in high school. I played jazz in college. It is one of my favorite uh, genres of music. It's also really challenging to learn how to improvise. I was a saxophone player and one of the things that we would do is uh, it, when I would go to jazz band practice every Monday night is we would just start with improvisation practice. That's taking a melody and then playing around with the melody. So in other words, when I look at the music on the stand in front of me, the exact notes are not written out for me. Kind of like a script, right? The script just tells you, here are the words to say. Here's what stage directions to use. In jazz, you don't have any of that. You've got a chord chart, and you know that in a given 
chord, you've got multiple options of notes that you could be playing. And so let me just extend the metaphor one step, and then we'll we'll wrap it up for this kind of introduction here. Um, I think the church acts like a good rhythm section. In other words, the church, and what I mean church, I mean kind of big C, I mean like the whole tradition of the people of God. Uh, I mean like scripture and tradition, this grand tradition that's been given to us. I think the church acts like a really good rhythm section. The rhythm section is your bass and your guitar and your drums. They're laying down the chord structure. In other words, improvisation is not just going and doing whatever you want to do. You've got to be responsive to the rhythm section. In other words, if I'm playing a solo and I'm playing whatever I want to and I'm not listening to what the rhythm section is doing, it's going to sound horrible. But I think one of the joys of Christian ethics is to say, you know, there's a chord structure there, and I'm guided by that chord structure, but I'm also not being dictated in terms of what I do. When I walked down the street earlier this evening to like see what was going on, see what I could do to be helpful in that particular situation, there's a range of options that were available to me of things that I could do in that given moment. And you know what? I think about five of them probably would have been faithful to the way of Jesus. There's not just one. It's not just there's one right way that you have to engage this situation. Otherwise, you've kind of failed Christian ethics. I don't think that's it. I just need to know that with the church, like what I want in that moment is the church kind of laying down the groove for me. Does that make sense? Like I know, oh, here's how I can groove to the way of Jesus in this particular situation. It may not be this note. In other words, you all may play a slightly different variation of the melody, but I want to play a different version of the melody as well that's still faithful to Jesus. So in other words, I like to say that some Christian ethics is like improvising in the key of Jesus. I still want it to sound like Jesus. I still want it to be in the same key, in the same groove even though I'm not reading notes exactly, because if I deviate from that that exact kind of structure, uh, that I may be breaking some kind of a rule. So let me pause. Thoughts, comments, questions, hopes, dreams, fears. Does that make sense? One of the things that stuck out at me a minute ago when you're talking about the improvisation idea is that, well, first of all, going in the music you know, theme, I think that's one of the reasons why there's so many different expressions of the church from the same church, right? Um, within one local church, there can be many different expressions of the church based on gifts and abilities and passions and opportunities. And I, I love that analogy. I love that picture of the church being the rhythm section, the, the kind of the foundation or the, you know, the, the base, you know, um, but one of the things that struck me about the improvisation idea when, when you're talking about um, the character, I was thinking about how Jesus was always true to his character. He, he was always true to his person, but he always surprised, he often surprised us. He surprised the disciples. He, he, he surprised the, he, he surprised the, those who followed him, you know, in the, in the gospels. And so, I think that's refreshing to think about how 
we can within that range without being without being untrue to the character of Christ we can be somewhat unpredictable sometimes and God can surprise us the Holy Spirit can surprise us and we can be surprising and you know uh that was a this is a thought that came to mind yeah you know it's good to know that Terry doesn't have to do the same thing the same handle the situation the same way that I might or that I don't have to do the same thing that Terry would, but both of us could still be true to the character of Jesus in a given situation. Yeah, that's that's the hope there. See, there's actually a story, um, Explorer's Clash, you'll have to forgive me because you've probably heard this and you've seen it at least once, but Herbie Hancock is talking about Miles Davis, and does anybody know who either of those are? So. Miles Davis is probably one of the greatest jazz trumpeters ever, and Herbie Hancock is all, one of the greatest keyboardists ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but Herbie played with Miles for several years, and, and he's talking about this one time when he's playing during one of Miles' solos. And, and Miles would, would go all kinds of places uh, with the music, always fitting, though, within that character. And Herbie says he's playing along, and, and he he's not even paying attention to what he does and he plays the wrong note and he knows it's the wrong note and he freezes. He says, miles took like a couple of seconds, considered it and then just went off in that direction. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what you're talking about in Proposition in the key of Jesus, where the character was such that Herbie thought he had made a mistake, but because of the trust and the relationship there, it went in a direction that was still part of the same character. And even though the song was kind of altered, Miles never considered it a mistake. In fact, he didn't even get upset about it. It was just, it was just something that had happened and it, it just changed the directory of that moment. So I, I think a lot of when we're improv, when we're improvising here, I would say that sometimes it's a momentary thing where even if we think we've made a mistake, as long as we've done it in the right character, there's often good that can come of it because of the others around us that we have to trust. Good. That was in the wrong key. Um, so would you say I, the idea of improvisation that, that much in the way that other people uh, like doctors, we, we talk about they're practicing medicine, that we are practicing life, that life in itself is an improvisation. And so every step we take, the idea is that there are lots of different things that could be happening, lots of different ways that we could be uh, interacting, but all staying within that same character. But to me, that's just such a beautiful thing because that allows for so much free will that everyone else's life as it's bouncing off of ours, all the other free wills that are bouncing off of ours. And yet, even within those things, this grand, if we want to stick with the music, the grand song that is playing, and that if we're just willing to listen, keep our ears open for the rhythm that that continues to guide our heart as we then within our own care with our own character our own personalities we respond in ways 
Yes. Yes, 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 yes. And let me just say, that doesn't just happen on its own. In other words, I don't want, when I hear you say, oh, it gives its, itself to like free will. Yeah, it sure does. But um, Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis had to practice scales over and over and over and over and over and over to be able to have a will that was free. In other words, um, sometimes I'll ask people, like, what are you doing for the next hour? And, well, nothing's on my calendar. Well, are you free to go run a half marathon? Well, technically, according to my calendar, I'm free. But what is it that actually gives you the freedom to run a half marathon? It's hours of discipline, of practice, that have led you to be able to be free to have that particular skill, right? You got to be in shape to do that. If I tried, (laughs) I tried once without being in shape, it was not a pretty picture. And so when it comes to moral improvisation, that's part of what I want to suggest too, is that we're not just kind of these free agents. Part of what you all are doing right now by being here tonight is practicing for freedom. In other words, you're giving yourself to learning the way of Jesus, to like thinking about theology and chewing on this stuff and giving yourself to the practices of discipleship and worshiping together and reading scripture so that we can actually have the freedom to play the music, the grand song. Uh, I mean, I just think one of the best visions I get of the Christian life is someone who is is like Miles Davis, who has the capacity to like hear this music and go, let me do this with it, and then plays in complete freedom. But the very same time, I hear my band teacher saying to me, practice your scales, practice your scales. You won't be able to play a good solo unless your fingers just know how to do it. You can't think it in the moment. You have to have it so deep in your bones that you react. That's Miles Davis. Yeah. Yeah. My question is, uh, I noticed that there's like definitely in the body. Does that make sense? It, I, it makes sense to me. And so I'll repeat for the stream. The question is, um, um, when it comes to improvisation, obviously the practice is going to include making mistakes. So, at what level do we, quote-unquote, allow for those mistakes? Um, I've got some thoughts on that. I'd kind of like to hear from my friends up here before I say anything else. Just because you all are living local church ministry right here. I think it's a balance. I think um, you you have to provide room for mistakes. You have to provide room for people to grow and develop into their passions and their calling. And I'm not sure exactly the context of the question, whether it's like in a ministry context or whether it's in like some kind of serving role perhaps or leadership role. But I think the church's job is to surround the members of the congregation, empower them, equip them, nurture them and guide them to, to develop, and to grow in Christ, and then to use the the gifts that God has given them to further the kingdom of God. Now, the the other part of that is the church's role is to nurture and and almost 
kind of be garden keepers in some ways where you have somebody who's perhaps planting some weeds or causing some harm and division or whatever, you know, you got to watch out for that and you got to have to manage that some as well. I think that you always want to provide room for mistakes and you want to provide room for um, less than perfect because we're all less than perfect. But I think it's a, I think it's a dance and it's a balance and I think it's spirit led and bathed in prayer. And I think that it's just about also about the church understanding where God is leading them within their context as a community of faith and where God is, is planting them. You know, a church, a local church can't be everything to everyone, you know, and we can't, you know, if we said yes to every idea, we would be splintered in a thousand directions and would do nothing well, you know, so you have to take all those things into account as well. And so it's about a complex balance of those factors. That's a very short way to answer a very big question. I was going to say, especially when we're thinking about mistakes or, you know, freedom, I think was part of the question of how we, how we work in that is there has to be some kind of trust. And I think, especially at the local church level, you know, we're a community, we're a family. There's, there's a lot that goes on here in, in every church, in the building, in the body, different things that go on where trust is key. And I think even in improvisation, there has to be some level of trust to be able to trust that the other players, especially in music, are going to stay within the right character or you're playing within the agreed to framework of the of the music, so the melody or or even the rhythm, and I, I think the rhythm is what grounds us. It's kind of the centering of who we are, and you know Dan Boone's tether ball. That ball's going out in several directions all the time. When we're in the body and doing different things, I think that there are going to be mistakes. But if we trust one another. If the mistake goes too far, we can trust that we can talk about that and find a, you know, pull that in or say that, that there's not a mistake, but somebody feels there's one is, is explaining to those who thought it was a mistake that it was a mistake, that it was part of the true character of the church or of Jesus in that. So, um, and I think when we're doing faith, especially in community, there is a lot of give and take and there's a lot of things where we may think we've made a mistake or we may go too far somewhere. Um, and it's, it's in that relationship that we're able to um, find the truth of it and, and find a grounding and even pull back or go forward if we need to. So, I think, I think too, to add to what you're saying, you touched on it in your chapter on walking with a limp, Right. Um, and, and I, and I really appreciated that, that, that take you had where it talked about how the church wrestles a lot of times. And so there's a wrestling, um, and we don't always get it right. And we, we, we sometimes come away from it with a limp, but that limp is a testimony of our 
desire to get it right and our desire to find God in the midst of it and to follow Christ faithfully in the midst of it, even when we make missteps. So I love that chapter about that. It kind of touches on that a little bit. I hadn't thought about that before. That's good. I'm probably the only one up here who doesn't know your name. Renee? That's a good name. That's my sister's name. Um, Renee, that sounds to me like discipleship. In other words, when I think about your dad and your uncle and your brother, it sounds to me like they're discipling him. So what is discipleship other than like learning some scales? <laughs> you know, it doesn't start, you don't start as a virtuoso follower of Jesus. It sounds to me like they would know when he's ready to play with them in these particular situations. And it sounds like they could also have a blast at home, uh, like practicing together. It To me, Christian ethics is about preparing for a decision you have to make 20 years from now. It's not just about unlocking some magical moral theory in your head and solving every moral dilemma through that theory. It's about giving yourself to a community who helps you practice over and over and over and over and over again so that 10 years from now, you find yourself in a moral dilemma and you don't have to think about it. Your character takes over. See, I don't think our moral theories tend to show. We might be convinced up here of a moral theory. that We're totally convinced of this. Like, if this is the right way to do it. But that doesn't always translate into what we actually do when we're faced with a moral dilemma. Okay? I can say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life as a moral theory. Does that mean it's actually got a hold of me when I'm faced with a particular moral dilemma or decision that I have to make? I need the church to help me practice. I need your dad and your uncle to help me learn my scales. And that to me sounds like how do I say this? People who've been walking with Jesus a long time to help other people know how to have the freedom to improvise. Not to, Again, improv is not just doing whatever you want. It's saying, oh, try this. This would sound amazing. That sounds like Jesus to me. It's not quite the way I would have done it. It's not the way I would improvise around that thing, but it's still faithful to the way of Jesus. That's how I hear it, at least. And I don't know your name either. You've got your hand up. Karen, what's your... Thought, comment, question? Yeah, you hang on. Hey, we're going to get a mic. Let's get you the mic. So people can hear. Please. It should be. Hello? Okay. So my, it's just a thought. Is that our, our moral ethics, and no, we make mistakes. But I think a big part of that making mistakes is surrounding yourself with people that you know are going to forgive you and give you grace. And I think as Christians, that's what we're called to do, too. Um, I think that kind of goes along with um, we're not perfect people, so we are going to make mistakes. We're going to say the wrong thing. We're going to do the wrong thing. And to have those around you that will forgive you and support you and give you some grace. I think that's important. Can I ask a question to follow up with that? Yes. And you don't have to answer this question, but I've heard two people mention it now. What do you mean when you say mistake? Um, so that's a really good question. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think it can go two ways. Um, I think sometimes people are um, don't have a lot of self-esteem maybe, and they feel like they're doing something wrong and making a mistake. I can be guilty of that personally. But um, 
And I think, too, it might have something to do with, like, other things that have been done, experiences, like how maybe some other, someone else has treated you when you've done something wrong or a mistake. I've done a mistake. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, part of the reason I've asked that is because I, when I hear the word mistake, I hear it in those musical terms. You didn't play the right note. So let me go back to another musical example. When I was in high school, I was in jazz band and I was in concert band. In concert band, you've got all of the notes right there, just the way they're supposed to be played. And I was really frustrated, Karen, that when I was a senior, there was a sophomore sitting next to me. I was in first chair, which means I was supposed to be like the most reliable musician. And he was a sophomore. And he was in second chair, and he was better than I was. And the only reason I was in first chair is because I was a senior, and he was a sophomore. And he used to point out every mistake I'd make. It was a blessing, just a true blessing. I mean, like, I'd play the wrong note or, like, play when I wasn't supposed to be playing or, like, go to the wrong place in the music. And immediately I saw that bony little finger coming over, and he'd point to it on the music and go, like, and it's not like, Karen, I knew I made a mistake. I knew I played the wrong note. I didn't need him pointing that out to me. Here's the, the issue. Like, I think the moral issue for me is pointing out people's mistakes is not a very good form of discipleship. Make sense? I mean, this is Romans 1 for me. <laughs> Paul does this like, hey, look, writing to the church in Rome, you've got some Gentiles, you've got some Jews. The, the like deeply enmeshed Jewish believers are doing a really good job at pointing out to the Gentiles how they are violating the law. It's like they keep making mistakes according to the law. Paul's trying to say something else about the character of a Christian community. Maybe it's not just about, maybe the moral life of the Christian community isn't just about looking at other people's lives and going, look at you blew it right there. You blew it right there. You blew it right there. And part of what I'm trying to suggest in the improv is, well, if we're not, if the, the moral shape of the Christian life isn't just about playing the right notes just as they're written, maybe we're not making as many mistakes as we think that we are. Does that make sense? That maybe there's a sense of alleviation of some of the guilt that many of us have grown up under. Now, now I say that, and maybe some of you are like, yeah, but people are making mistakes. And I go, yeah, when they leave the key of Jesus. They are. And that's where I go back to Renee's point is you hear it, right? So, or or to hear a pastor say, I've seen it. People show up in the church and they start playing in a different key. And part of the pastoral responsibility in that moment is to say, hang on a second, you're in the wrong key. I got to get you back into the right key, right? Do you hear what the key that the rest of the band is playing? We got to get in the right key. That doesn't sound like Jesus to me. And it's also important to know that everybody is in a different place in their journey with Christ. And Jesus meets everybody where they are, and he walks with them where they are. And the church is to do the same. We are, through his grace, supposed to meet everyone where they are and disciple them from where they are um, and walk with them through that. And and I think the trust is a key that Brandon talked about. Trust is such a key component there, too. On both on both ways, you know. Yeah. What's your name? It's Taylor. 
Do you think the church could ever get to a point where the jazz players and the alternative rock players can play together? If we're going to go with that illustration. Uh, so tell me a little bit more. Uh, every metaphor has a breaking point, right? But uh, <laughs> but uh, tell me what you, who are the jazz players and who are the alternative players in your... That's what I thought of when Renee asked her question. Yeah, yeah. And because with one thing I love about this church is if I'm using that illustration there, this church is filled with all kinds of people. Sure. That we're all in the same chord, but we're all very different notes within that chord. Yeah. But we're all within that chord. Um, but something I see the church struggling with is a lot of times, regardless who the jazz players are and the blues players and the metal players and the alternative rock players, could there be a time when we all play together in that key of Christ? Because it's hard to see now. I mean, that sounds like Revelation 21 and 22 to me. <laughs> it's like when all things are the way that they're supposed to be, like it is just the music of the new creation that is playing. I mean, um, John uses this image in Revelation 21 and 22 of the new Jerusalem where the slaughtered lamb is sitting on the throne at the middle of the whole thing. And all of it is functioning according to, I call it the logic of the slaughtered lamb. It's Jesus at the middle of it all, and everything is finally moving in rhythm to that. So that's why I'm asking, like, okay, if if you mean, like, could the blues players and the alternative players and those kinds of things play together, if by that you mean, like, they all want to play in the key of Jesus, I go, yeah, that's the hope. You know what I'm saying? That's, like, what I think we're supposed to be rehearsing every Sunday when we gather together for worship. It's almost like a, a rehearsal for the new creation. Um, that's the way I envision it at least. But Taylor, if you mean the alternative players want to play something totally different than what Jesus is playing, that's where I think the church has to, is going to say, Hey, we would love for you to join our band. Here's what it takes. You know what I'm saying? It's by grace that you're invited into this and God's grace will help you learn how to play this music. But we're, we're going to use certain practices and formational things to help with that grace. It's called, I call it discipleship. Um, it is giving each other like uh, places to be discipled. Um, it's, it is older people meeting with younger people. It is pastors doing the work of pastoral ministry to help us learn how to play skillfully and freely in the key of Jesus. I, so I hope that it, does that come anywhere close? So, okay. So I have a question that okay. I think piggybacks on what Taylor asked. Okay. That's related to your book. Okay. It's a question I've been wanting to ask. And you said the word new creation. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. I'm finding my opportunity to ask you this question. In one of your early, earlier, in one of the earlier chapters, you talked about old creation and new creation. You talked about living and thinking in old creation ways and living and thinking in new creation ways. And then, and I think it's discernment dialogue four. You talked about political ethics. Okay. I have to go back. And, so you know this book better than I do. Uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> um, but you made a connection or I saw a connection between old 
creation and new creation and political ethics. And you, you asked the question, how does our political, how do we engage politically and are we engaging politically in a way that is old, reflects old creation versus new creation? So I wanted to see if you could maybe expound on that a little bit. What does it look like for somebody to think and live towards an old creation versus the new creation? And I, I think it kind of has to do with a little bit with what, what Taylor was alluding to. And so yeah. I just wanted to throw that to you. Oh, yeah. my word. Okay. That's such a good question. Old creation and new creation. Let me start with new creation because I think there's a biblical precedent. By the way, that's what Dr. Dunning said he really liked about the book. Uh, no, and we had a lunch together. You might know Dr. Dunning was the longtime theology professor at Trevecca. And so every so often, he, he and we attend church together, and he's a, just a delightful person. But uh, I was taking him home from lunch. And he goes, by the way, we haven't talked about your ethics book yet. And I don't think really a Nazarene has written an ethics book since he did in, in those days. And so uh, I was like, oh, boy, here we go. And he goes, the new creation thing. That, I like that. More of that. There should have been more of that in the book. <laughs> like, that was my – he goes, the, I, it, was, it made it biblical. It was very biblical. So like, okay, message received. So the next one, more new creation. But what is new creation? I think in the way that at least Christians in our tradition understand this, this is what God is doing to make all things function the way that they were supposed to function in the very beginning before the fall affected everything. So in other words, it is, well, Dr. Dunning uses four relationships. I, I use three. Uh, I, I think the new creation is when... The, the three major relationships that were affected by the fall are reconstituted between God and humanity, between all of humanity, and between humanity and the rest of the creation. So in Genesis 1 and 2, primarily Genesis 2, you get this beautiful image of how all things were right and good and creation was supposed to flourish because of the way God designed it. So God and humanity are living in right relationship with one another, humans are living in right relationship with one another, and humans are living in right relationship with the rest of the creation. All of that is broken in Genesis 3 when the fall occurs. So the human beings withdraw from God's presence as God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They're hiding from God, and they're hiding from one another. They've clothed themselves for the first time because they're now suddenly ashamed of seeing each other without clothing. And then you see the curses in Genesis 3, like now there's enmity between human beings and these animals and no longer does the uh, like the, the, the garden provide all of the stuff. Now these humans are going to have to work really hard to make the earth produce all the food that they need and these kinds of things. Now, the fun part about this is that if you go read the last two chapters of the Bible— all of those relationships that were in the first two chapters of the Bible are restored in the last two chapters of the Bible. That is, God is now with the people. And you can see it all over uh, the last two chapters of Revelation. Uh, I, will, you know, I will be their God. They will be my people. There's this kind of like restoration there. All of the kings lead their people into this new creation. Not let me ask this. When kings are leading their people in the Bible, what are they normally doing? Where are they normally going? 
when kings get out and lead their people to war. Not in the new creation. They're too busy worshiping to fight each other. In other words, the kings are now leading their people in worship of the slaughtered lamb who's seated on the throne. That's why I think that Sunday morning should be a rehearsal of this. Ooh, every Sunday, it's just good. And then finally, in Revelation 23, you see this image of the trees that are in constant flower in every uh, month of every year. They provide, I can't remember John's exact phrasing here, like it is food for the nations and it's like in plentiful supply or something along those lines. They, they, they don't have any want. In other words, the earth is now doing everything it's supposed to do. So that's what I mean by new creation. What do I, so what do I mean by old creation? I mean everything that isn't that. And so when John talks about this in Revelation, the old creation are the is the stuff that's fighting against that. It's it's the times, the places, the people, the systems, the structures that are just getting in the way of God's new creation project. Oftentimes it is people, structures, systems, whatever it is that have a vested interest in keeping old creation old because it's, it's really good for them. But what is it doing? Not allowing creation to function the way that it's designed to function. And so what we see in Revelation is this beautiful, 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 beautiful image of this slaughtered lamb going up against these huge beasts. And every reader of Revelation in the first century would look at that and go like, oh, who's supposed to win? The beasts are supposed to win. They're bigger, they're scarier, they're more powerful, they've got more stuff behind them, and every single one of them goes down into literal flames because the slaughtered lamb goes up against them. And I think that's John's way of saying to a church in the first century that had its backs against a political and cultural wall going, um, the way of Jesus really is what's making the world new. That's what I mean by the politics of this. The way of Jesus' life really is what's going to make the world new. Rome might be telling you that this is the way that life is supposed to be. The Babylonian Empire might tell you this. The Egyptians might tell you this. Every empire is going to say, this is what, like, if you just get on board with this. And Christians had to be the ones who said, no, 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 no. It is the way of Jesus that's making the world new. And we've staked our lives on it. And so when I think about our political engagement, I have to say, I have to kind of remind myself over and over and over again, in all of the political rhetoric that is out there, is there someone promise me some, promising me something that will make my world really good and new that's out of step with the way of Jesus? I need to be aware of that um, because my Christian faith tells me I need to stake my life I have staked my life. That's why I'm a Christian on the way of Jesus, which is actually going to the only thing that's ever going to, to make the world new. It's going to make free us from all that old creation stuff that would just hold us down. Does that come anywhere close to answering? Absolutely, your absolutely does. It's great. And 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 thank thank you for expounding on that a little bit. And you know, I think the challenge is when you have people in the same local church that have two very different views of what that is right <laughs> sorry yeah, i think greg had a question hey i'm greg hey greg. 
Um, when you were talking about the improvis- improvisation, uh, I thought about um, when, as as Christians, we are supposed to have our cup full, right? So when when we go out and we are improv and doing improvisation out in the world, right? If our cu- cup is full, it's automatically sprinkling Jesus out to wherever we go, right? So when we get to these situations, uh, and there's a crazy, I'll give you a situation I was in. The Lord showed me that I was driving from New York to Georgia, and the, the Lord gave me a, a vision of a hitchhiker. And sure enough, here comes the hitchhiker, right? I passed him, and I repented and everything like that, sorry. And I went back, and I picked him up, and the guy was drunk. So later later on down the road, we drove hundreds of miles. Later on down the road, uh, he says, hey, can, can you do me a favor? And he says, uh, can you get me a beer? I'm like, you know, and I'm talking to the Lord the whole time. You know, what do I do? And, you know, you don't cast your pearl before swine. So I really wasn't doing anything. But over the hour, whatever it was that he was with me, he sobered up. And he started talking talking about the Lord, right? And, you know, and then he asked me that, can you get me a beer? I'm like, I'm not supposed to do that. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not supposed to do that. What do I do? I said, Lord, what do I do? What do I say to him? You know what the Lord said? Get him a beer. There's more to that story if anyone wants to hear it. <laughs> but the thing is, what the Lord has for us to do can be so contradictory to what we're taught, right? And there is a lot more to that story. So, um, so as we're improvising, right? When we act like we think we're supposed to act, if our cup is not full, right? Are the people, and we say we're going to love them with the love of Jesus. If our cup is not full, are we loving them with the love of Jesus? Or is that just a a thing from us in our natural man saying, okay, this is this is I'm gonna show you love, but it's really from me. It's not really from Jesus. Like like people that feed the poor. We have Christian organizations that feed the poor. We have non-Christian organizations that feed the poor, right? And I sure hope there's a difference. You know, when they're feeding the poor, I know, you know, you have services and stuff like that. Right. But, um, that's what I was, you know, if we're acting, then we're acting. If we're showing the love of Jesus, that comes from welling up deep with inside and comes out. And that is the fruit of the spirit. That's the love that we're supposed to show. And if it's not bubbling over, you know, how are we showing that love? Anyway. Yeah, that brings so many stories to mind. I'm trying I know our time is short. Um I'll just tell you one one quick one <clears throat> about a student I was teaching at a community college. This is not a Christian university. Um I was in grad school. He was about my age. Um and he had served two tours in Iraq. So he was using his GI Bill to go to school, and I'm teaching an ethics course. 
and it's not it's, it's not a Christian place. So I can't I, you know, I'm not doing Christian ethics necessarily. So I'm kind of taking them through the major moral theories or whatever. And I remember there was one day that uh, we we had this conversation, and something just in his imagination he just kind of goes, "I have a story," and he raised his hand. And he told me a story about how when he was in Iraq, his unit was patrolling in an urban center. I can't remember which city in Iraq it was. He and one other soldier were given the orders to go in the alleyway behind the house where the rest of his squad was going from house to house, clearing out these houses, looking for insurgents. He, standing in the alleyway, looks down the alleyway, and here comes a kid who's about 12 or 13 years old with a hand grenade in his hand, a racky boy. And he said, in that moment, I had a moral decision that I had to make because I knew on the one hand, we'd been sending messages to as many people as we get to. If you find weapons, give them to American soldiers. We want to get as many weapons off the street as we possibly could. I also know the possibility that this boy has been radicalized and is on his way to try to do as much harm as he possibly can. And so he said, so I raised my weapon and I told him in the language, stop, 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 stop. And the boy wouldn't stop walking. And so I fired one round and hit him in the leg and he went down and the grenade fell out of his hand at a couple yards and it exploded. He had pulled the pen out of the grenade. He was intending to do harm. So in that moment, I, I just said, look, I've never served in the military before, but I know enough about military training to know they don't train you to shoot people in the leg. That's Hollywood stuff. That's fantasy. Why in the world did you do that? That, did that go against your training? He said, it went against my training. And I said, so can I just ask? And he goes, well, because when I was a kid, my grandma used to pick me up and take me to church every single week. I just can't shoot a kid. When you talk about having a full cup, what I'm saying is, this is a young man who was practicing for years before he had to make a moral decision. It was his character that took over in that moment. And I think his grandmother was filling his cup, giving him practices, teaching him how to moral, how to do moral improvisation in a way that he wasn't even able to articulate. He, did, he didn't have a moral theory to say, because if this happens, then I do this, if this is the circumstance. His character took over in a moment. And I think the formation that was happening in his life years before that moment was actually what showed up. And so I think we need to pay attention to how we're filling our cups. What's the, what are the practices? Are we doing something to help us toward the way of Jesus? Or are we satisfied with kind of emptying out our cups, not, not having a full cup? Three quick things. So one, wanted to ask a question about the concert person pointing out your mistakes, if we could go back to that for just a second. I was curious, were some of your mistakes because you were used to playing the jazz? <laughs> oh, <that's funny. laughs> because if so, the interesting idea is, were those actually mistakes for you? And are we... Are we existing within spaces where people want us to be concert versus jazz? 
Um, that's that was one thing I wanted to ask about. Second is the I yes, please, 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 Just real quick, yeah, yeah, because I won't remember that first. Okay, <laughs> Terry, I think this goes to the very heart of what it means to be a holiness people, and so. I'll say it very quickly. I don't know if that was – no, I, quite frankly, I was just making mistakes. I wasn't paying careful enough attention. I hadn't practiced the music enough. Like I just – my musical skills had not developed enough to be able to sight read that music. But here's the, the point on the Christian life. If holiness is about simply playing the notes exactly as they are written, those mistakes are going to haunt me forever. Does that make any sense? I'll never be able to do it. I'm just not going to acquire the skill. And you know what doesn't help? Someone sticking their finger on the music and going, you made a mistake, you made a mistake, you made a mistake. But what if holiness has something more to do with the heart, my heart being so transformed toward the character of Jesus, like being fully in love with God to the point that I don't love anything more than God. The love of God is filling my heart to the exclusion of everything else. A mistake looks really different in that situation. Does that make sense? In other words, my motivation is to say like, oh, I blew it. Um, let me fix that. So this is what West, John Wesley did this. He trained people in his band societies all the time to be able to do this because in the band societies, like tight-knit group of people who were chasing after holiness with everything that was in them. And they would do this thing where they would go around and confess their sins and then they would do a really fun thing, which is go around and everyone else would tell them the sins that they forgot to confess. Like you would tell me, oh, here's how I've seen you sin. But the whole point of that is to say, yeah, I need your eyes on me, but it's worth it because holiness is worth it. Like I want that so badly. And the point is, it's not someone sticking their bony finger in your face going, you made a mistake, as much as it's to say, I want, like I didn't see that as a mistake. Thank you for pointing that out. Now I can do something about it. I made a mistake, which goes to the trust. Well, it's, and it's like, going, it's, going to, it's like going to the mechanic. You want them to tell you yeah. all the things that are wrong so that yeah. they can get fixed. That's a, it's a different – you don't see them as – you don't say, oh, my goodness, what are you doing judging my car? That's it. <laughs> right? Um, but the other two things that I yeah, think were it. really big is, number one, we tend to think – of things as the concert. And so it's so tight. That's so narrow. We, we feel confined, but the idea, no, there is room for within that key for us to play. And the other thing that, that really caught my attention, something that Taylor said is the idea that because there's room within that key, that when we're called to be in unity with each other, it's when all of those different styles of players, all of those different people that have different ways of doing things, that when we operate within the same key and the world goes, how can all of you very disparate people in different styles and everything else, how can you possibly be playing the same song together? How can you do that? And that's when it's like, okay, yep. That's when we start looking like uh, the last two chapters and, and people take notice because it's like that doesn't even seem possible, but yet it is because we're all playing in the same key. That's exactly it. What's your third thing? That was the third thing. <laughs> Bless it and amen. 
Well, I think it's been a great night. I, I hope I hope we've been inspired and um, ha- had a good time here, at least in in talking about things that are very important. But I think in a great way, as as we like to do here. Um, especially thinking of the music and new creation. Um, something you say in the book is, is how living out ethics and morals in, in this life is, is, is a lot of trying to figure out what it means to be in the new creation. I, I, think, I think you even point to Scripture as, as a lot of Scripture is working out how to live in the new creation, especially in the New Testament. After this encounter with Jesus, how how do we live now? How do how do we how do we find the way to be who we are, and how how do we find that that core character of who it, of who we should be? Um, holiness, such a beautiful picture of transformation, and it not being that narrowly defined propositional thing. I think relationship. We talk a lot about relationship. Um, but the relationship of musicians, the relationship of actors, the relationship of just us as human beings, and the way that we work together towards that holiness, I don't think we can do it alone. I definitely don't think we can live out Christian ethics alone. I mean, all the stories we've told and the stories everyone's told, it's never about a single person. That decision that they make is never one that they made in isolation. It's because of that practicing, the working together. Um, you know, in jazz, you, you can't really play by yourself unless you're Kenny G. But that's not, that's not jazz. Jazz. Oh, <laughs> that's not jazz. That's not jazz, though, is it? <laughs> Smooth jazz. But when you're playing together in a church, we, we can't do this to alone. Christianity can't really be lived alone. The church is that rhythm section that brings us together. And as a people, we're playing along and we're we're working in that freedom as we become disciples and as we become more like Jesus so that the decisions we make, the ethical things we have to decide, the moral decisions, we're making them in community in the character of Jesus such that we don't see anything we do as a mistake necessarily, but we know when something's out of sorts such that we can bring it back into key and resolve it to where it needs to be. And I think that's what a lot of our moral decisions are. Something gets out of key. How do we get that back to key? How do we, how do we navigate the musical piece back into key so that everybody's playing in that new creation? Um, so, as we talk about the beautiful stories, it's beauty that's going to save the world. It's not the ugliness of pointing the things out. It's the beauty of working together and being the example and showing people that holiness is relational and holiness is filled with grace and love and mercy and holiness is worked out in community so that we can't make the mistake. So great stuff. Definitely thank Dr. Gaines. I mean, we got him to come here. Loved it. Just a few things about what's coming up. Um, the next two Wednesdays, we're going to be talking about the inspiration of Scripture. And then we've got Zach Hunt coming on August 2nd to talk about his new book, God Breathed. That should be fine. Yeah, yeah. That'll go fine. There won't be any. 
no, 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 no. But I do think, uh, you know, well, no, I should just let him talk about his own stuff. But he, there, that book, I'm telling you, he's doing more than what you think he's doing there. Um, yeah. That, maybe I'll just leave it at that. Very good book. He'll have his book here as well. Um, it just came out a few months ago. Uh, but and we'll, we're going to have to make we're going to have to get Zach to talk with a musical metaphor now that two weeks in a row, because Nick Polk talked about Tolkien's um, creation myth, which is Middle Earth and and the universe is created through music. Beautiful story. So here we have music again. Because the beautiful things, as I'll, I'll keep hammering, are, are what bring us. But after Zach, just so that you all know, we're going to do eight weeks of Finding God in the Music, like we did back in the fall. Um, if you were here, I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to do that again. Um, we're going to do eight weeks of that, and then we're going to go into um, electives again. So we're going to have three electives. But I want you to think about the ethical stuff we've talked about. I want you to think about telling the stories like we did with Tolkien as we go into especially this last section on Scripture, because I think both of these panels we've had and the the last in the four weeks we've talked about these subjects are going to help us understand the big one in a lot of ways of how we work out who we are and how we improvise as a body through the tradition of the church, through scripture, such that we are formed by that scripture as holiness people and as people shaped in the image of Christ rather than a people of propositional truths. Relational truths is what we're going to be talking about especially. So looking forward to all that. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you for those joining online, especially after the fact. And we really appreciate Dr. Gaines coming. I appreciate everybody here. And I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Dwayne to close us in prayer tonight. Lord, we are grateful for our time we've had tonight. We are so thankful for Dr. Tim Gaines to come and, and spend this time with us and sharing f- from his heart and his mind. And we are grateful for the book that he is has written and uh, Lord, we just um, we ask that you would help us to just continue to marinate in what we've discussed tonight. Help us to reflect on on the topics and the conversation. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to guide us in this area, um, form us and shape us to be more like you. And we just thank you again for this night. We thank you for everybody who's here. And we thank you for those who joined us online, and we just ask that you would be with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Parson Brown Podcast. I hope you enjoyed what you've heard, and if you did, please subscribe. Thanks for joining us on this journey.